A Saga of the New South. This is the newest book from today's speaker, and it treats the political and legal controversies uh, created in post-Civil War Virginia by Virginia's antebellum public debt. The debt controversy fundamentally altered the political landscape of Virginia twice. It created the conditions under which the Readjuster Party, a biracial coalition of radical reformers, seized control of the state government in 1879, and then it gave rise to a counter-revolution that led to the Democratic Party uh, to 80 years of dominance over the state's politics and government. The readjusters successfully refinanced the public debt and increased spending for the new public school system. But the debt controversy generated a long train of legal disputes. A saga of the New South sheds new light on the many obstacles reformers faced in Virginia and elsewhere in the South during the decades after the Civil War. Brent Tarter, who is with us, is the founding editor of the Library of Virginia's Dictionary of Virginia Biography. He is a co-founder of the annual Virginia Forum, which took place just earlier this month. And he is the author of several books, including The Grandees of Government, The Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia, Daydreams and Nightmares of Virginia Family Faces Succession and War, and A Saga of the New South, which we'll hear about today. Please join me in giving a warm Virginia welcome to Brent Tarter. Thank you. It's good to be back. I've been coming here for more years even than Lee Shepard has worked here. <laughs> I always dreaded trying to understand or having to explain two important events in Virginia's history, Bacon's Rebellion of 1676 and what in the literature of Virginia's history is called the Virginia Debt Controversy of the 1870s and 1880s. Published accounts of the two events never persuaded me that I understood them. I've now tackled both of them. It's up to you to decide whether or how far I succeeded. I published an article on Bacon's Rebellion in the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography back in 2011 based on my reading of some documents that historians of the period had failed to take seriously. I treated part of that in my book, Grandees of Government. I've now tackled the debt controversy with my new book, A Saga of the New South. I dreaded the debt controversy for what turned out to be an unsound reason. I dreaded having to do the arithmetic to understand public financing. <laughs> my ineptitude in mathematics and my undergraduate political science course in public administration and public financing was clearly the dullest class I ever took in either my major or minor field. We have some good guideposts, though. My good friend, the late James T. Moore, who taught at Virginia Commonwealth University for many, many years, published a fine book 40 years ago entitled Two Paths to the New South. His book explained the motivations of the biracial political faction known as the readjusters that arose during the 1870s and won control of state government in the elections of 1879 and 1881. What that excellent book did not do, though, and what frankly frightened me, was to explain the origins of the debt controversy and the ultimate resolution of it, which consisted of several refinancing, refinancings of the state debt and two long legal battles, one lasting into the 1890s and the other to 1919. 
So why have I now done this possibly foolish thing? Several years ago at the Library of Virginia where I work, we were writing entries for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities Online Encyclopedia of Virginia for a unit that we jointly sponsored with them called From Freedom to Disfranchisement, 1861 to 1902. We were focusing on the African-American experience after the end of slavery. The debt controversy plopped right down in the middle of that problem. We had to deal with it. We couldn't avoid it. We had to dig into the original records to try to get the facts right. We were not sure that anybody ever had. During that digging, one of my colleagues noticed an apparent discrepancy between the language of an 1872 law about interest payments on the debt and the way in which that law had been characterized in the historical literature, such as it is. With further digging, we learned that the 1872 law made no sense at all unless you read it in connection with the 1871 law, and then it did. That gave us a warning. We needed to know much more than we did before we went further. I therefore began an annotated chronology of all of the laws, lawsuits, and other documents relating to the debt controversy so that we could try to get it right. That quickly became such a large and unwieldy project that I abandoned it and shifted instead to trying to understand why the General Assembly passed so many laws relating to payment of the debt why the state and federal courts found many of them unconstitutional, why that brought the readjusters into being in the first place, and how the destruction of the readjusters in the mid-1880s led to the creation of an elitist, white, pro-business, white supremacy Democratic Party that dominated Virginia from the 1880s to the 1960s. I outlined some of that in my book, The Grandees of Government. Now I had to find out all the details. Fortunately, and I was very relieved at this, I must tell you, fortunately I found out that it did not have to do much arithmetic. Our attempt to understand what was going on allowed me to explore afresh the emergence and destruction of the fascinating biracial coalition of poor and middle-class Virginians, and also two long and neglected and equally fascinating sequences of lawsuits, all focused on the question of how much of the debt should Virginia taxpayers have to pay. Almost nobody had ever paid any attention to the laws or the lawsuits. And as I began to study them, the story of late 19th century Virginia politics began to change. Hence this book. It all began almost 50 years before the Civil War. As in many other states, Virginia's political leaders and industrialists embarked on an ambitious plan to improve transportation networks in the state, to promote agricultural and industrial growth and prosperity, and make Virginia the key seaboard state in the commerce between the Atlantic world and the Ohio Valley. Railroads were the largest and most important new industry in the country in the middle of the 19th century. They employed miners to dig coal and iron ore to make the necessary iron and steel. They employed manufacturers to construct locomotives, freight cars, passenger cars, and other equipment. They employed laborers to lay and maintain track. 
They hired slaves and purchased slaves to do that too. They employed woodcutters and other men to cut and transport wood and coal to burn in the locomotives, including more slaves. They employed men to staff water towers, stations, and other warehouses and depots that steam locomotives then required, even more slaves. And ticket agents, clerks, printers who issued timetables and tickets for passengers. The economic importance of railroads was vast. No other industry in the 19th century employed so many people, cost so much money, or derived so much financial assistance from national and state governments. The Virginia government chartered private companies to construct canals, toll roads, and many railroads. The state, and this is, this is unique, this is something unprecedented and almost impossible to believe, the state of Virginia bought 40% of the shares of stock of every one of those companies. They did that in order to stimulate rapid capital formation and early beginning of construction. So the state was an owner, in a large part, usually the largest owner, of all of the railroads. Even from the beginning, but especially in the 1950s as railroad construction accelerated, tax revenue was inadequate to the task of purchasing shares of stock in those companies. So the state began to sell bonds to raise money with which to buy shares of stock in the railroad companies. Those bonds enabled Virginia companies to construct more than 1,900 miles of railroads in Virginia by 1861. The red lines on this map show railroads built in part with money the state borrowed. As of the beginning of 1861, the state had issued bonds valued at almost $34 million. That does not sound like a lot of money today. Back then, it was a huge amount of money. It was the third largest state debt in the entire United States, behind only Pennsylvania and New York. But because those states were much more populous than Virginia, the Virginia debt was much larger per capita. And because about 30% of Virginians lived in slavery and paid no taxes, the debt was even huger in terms of each taxpayer's responsibility. As of 1861, as of 1865, that network of railroads was largely wrecked. The networks of canals and toll roads fell into disuse during the subsequent decade, leaving Virginia with almost nothing for which it had borrowed money, leaving Virginia with the responsibility to pay back that money with interest anyway. And remember, and those of you who bought a house will know this, of course, that you borrow a lot of money for a long time, you usually wind up paying more in interest for the use of the money than you actually pay for the house or for the railroad. Old unpaid interest became new debt during the Civil War. By 1870, that original $34 million of debt had grown to more than $45 million. From the end of the Civil War into the 1890s, Virginia's public debt was by far the largest in the United States. I mean, by two or three orders of magnitude. The railroad companies ceased paying dividends on the stock the state continued to own, which depressed the collection of revenue. And the abolition of slavery had taken off the tax book the second most valuable source of taxation in the entire state. Virginia securities at the end of the 1860s were trading at about half their face value. Speculators therefore bought the debt at reduced rates, and then they demanded that the state pay all of the back interest 
in full and promised to pay all of the principal in full. What was the state to do? Immediately after the Civil War, the economic condition of Virginia was terrible. That simultaneously made payment of the debt and economic revival both more urgent and more difficult. If the state could not recover rapidly enough, tax revenue would likely remain too low to permit payments on the debt. But without reestablishing a good reputation for financial um, reliability by paying the debt, neither the state government nor the state's businesses and bus bankers and businessmen could hope to attract adequate private capital from outside the state with which to revive the economy. Reviving the economy and paying the debt each required success at doing the other first. What to do? With very few exceptions, the state's business and political leaders insisted that the state's honor and its economic future required the state to pay the debt. This broadside from here in the collections of the Virginia Historical Society documents the existence of an organization of elite white Virginia women to promote full funding of the debt in order that the state could regain its sound financial footing and be in a position to prosper. Organizations like it existed throughout the state. Implications for paying the debt or not paying the debt gripped public attention during the following decade, much in the same way that issues such as immigration and gender identity do now. Moreover, Virginia's Constitution of 1869 created the state's first statewide system of public schools. The Constitution required the state to spend more on the new schools than for any other one thing, even as revenue was down and debt service was up. The result, as you can imagine, even without doing any arithmetic, was a long budget crisis. But it gets even worse. In 1871, the state refinanced the debt. It called in all the bonds it had issued before the Civil War and issued replacement bonds paying 6% interest for 34 years, the same as on the old bonds. You could collect that interest in one of two ways. If you exchanged your old bond for a standard bond, they called them consolidated bonds or consoles, you held on to it for 34 years, and then you cast it in at the Treasury, and you got all of the interest, and you got all of the principal at the State Treasury. You could also exchange your old bonds for what were called coupon bonds. Each bond had attached to it 68 coupons that allowed the owner to collect half the annual interest every six months. That was a very popular way that states, cities, counties, railroads, and other businesses used to raise capital during the 19th century. It even led to a figure of speech that some of the younger members of the audience may not recognize, but the rest of us will. A coupon clipper was somebody who did not have to work, who lived off income from speculative investment in public or private securities. Why does that matter? It matters because the Funding Act of 1871 that provided for the exchange of old bonds for new bonds tried to make the new bonds attractive by allowing people to pay taxes with the interest-bearing coupons. That was a pretty good deal for a person who was low on cash but had a coupon bond in the cabinet, clip off the coupon, pay part of your taxes with it, save your money. 
It was a terrible thing for the state's treasury, though, because every dollar in taxes paid with a coupon was a dollar the state could not use to pay school teachers, operate the state government, or even pay interest on the debt. And by the 1970s, speculators in northern and European cities owned most of the bonds. Of course, they didn't clip coupons to pay Virginia taxes because they did not owe Virginia taxes. What they did do, though, however, was sell coupons to Virginia taxpayers. Virginia taxpayers could profit. They could buy a bond at a discounted price and pay their taxes at face value and pocket the difference. The state budget deficits continued. Throughout the entire 1870s, the state ran a budget deficit every year, and it managed to scrape by only by reducing payments on the interest and robbing the school budget in order to pay that interest. As a consequence, the state's two political parties, called conservatives and republicans, divided into factions. One faction was called funders, who insisted on paying all the interest and the full principal in order to restore the economic vitality of the state, regardless of the effect on the schools. The other faction was called readjusters, who wanted to adjust or readjust, was the word that they used, the method of funding the debt in order to reduce the rate of interest to be paid, in order to reduce the amount of principal to be paid in the end, in order to free up money to pay for the schools. The schools were extremely unpopular. African-American mothers and fathers sent their children to the new schools in thousands, providing their children educations most of the parents had not been able to obtain in slavery times. They knew the importance of education and took immediate and enthusiastic advantage of it. So did most white Virginians, especially poor white Virginians. Their children had not much, had much opportunity for uh, obtaining an education in the olden days either. This image of a schoolroom is only one of hundreds and thousands from the period, even though most of them were very poor buildings, dilapidated, shabby, poorly lighted, without heat, and often without adequate textbooks. Readjusters won control of the state government by a simple and easy method. They asked taxpayers, what do you want to do with your tax money? Do you want to send it to invest bond speculators in northern and European cities, or do you want to spend it for the benefit of your children's education? Well, you can guess what the voters answered. They won, readjusters won majorities in both houses of the General Assembly in 1879 and in 1881. And in 1881, they elected a new governor, attorney general, and um, lieutenant governor. The General Assembly of 1882 was the most reform-minded legislature in all of the 19th century, perhaps ever. It slashed the amount of principal to be paid and reduced the interest rate a second time. It diverted large sums of tax money from debt service to public education. The assembly also reduced taxes on farmers and raised taxes on railroads and other businesses. Within two years, the readjusters converted a funder treasury deficit into a surplus, while at the same time significantly increasing expenditures on the public schools. Readjusters replaced almost all the county and city school superintendents in the state with people who were fully committed to good education for all the children and also overhauled the administrations of the state's colleges. 
legislators founded a mental hospital for African Americans, what is now Central State Hospital. And they founded a college for African Americans, which is now Virginia State University. The 1882 assembly was, in fact, the second reconstruction of Virginia and was of virtually equal importance to the reconstruction of the 1860s that granted full citizenship rights to African Americans and also granted black men the right to vote. This undated campaign leaflet from the collections of the Library of Virginia is one of the gems of the period. It lists for each year from 1871 through 1882 the number of schools for African-American children, the number of teachers, and the number of students when funders controlled the General Assembly and held the governorship. And it contrasts those numbers with the brief time when readjusters controlled the General Assembly and held the governorship. Notice how cleverly the designer of this leaflet emphasized the differences with type sizes that vary and call attention to the differences. More important, look at the line directly below the title. Let every mother read, and by the facts which these figures below establish, determine for yourself who are the friends of the children. Because the children were colored scholars, it is quite clear that this campaign leaflet was printed in preparation for the 1883 election, that it was aimed at African-American mothers in hopes they would influence their male relatives who could vote. So never let anybody say women had no political influence before they gained the vote in 1920. What is most important here is that scarcely 15 years after the end of slavery, poor and middle-class white and black Virginians successfully cooperated in politics for the benefit of all their children. They did it by screwing the creditors and by defeating the traditional elite white political leaders of Virginia. These events were unprecedented in Virginia and just about anywhere else in the South. Things were changing in Virginia after the Civil War in ways that the state's traditional political leaders found truly alarming. Know who this is? William Mahone. He was a short man with a long beard and he had long on energy and determination and will and with more self-confidence in his own judgment than you could normally Whoops, I just pushed a button. There's Billy Mahone. And he was very talented. Before the Civil War, he had built what became the Norfolk and Western Railroad. He was one of the better brigadier, brigadier generals in the Confederate Army. He was the organizing genius and principal spokesman for the readjusters. Mahone served six years as a Republican representing Virginia in the United States Senate. He was one of a much larger number than we might expect of ex-Confederate Virginia Republicans. As a consequence of leading the biracial coalition, he became one of the most hated men in Virginia's entire history, quite unfairly, I think. Listen to Senator Mahone in 1882. Our people have just declared popular education to be among the most sacred duties and trusts of representative government and are bravely executing that honorable decree. With valuable and beneficent results, we are rapidly guaranteeing a priceless ballot to all entitled to it under the American theory. 
Conspicuous among the achievements of the advanced thought that places Virginia in full alignment with the highest American civilization is the prompt justice with which he deals with an element of population which has been the fruitful source of passionate disputation. He meant the state's African Americans. In Virginia, Mahone concluded proudly and provocatively, he is at last in the full panoply of acknowledged citizenship. Mahone explained readjuster policies in terms of the American theory and the highest American civilization, not in terms of traditional Virginia values. He accepted as legitimate and proper the full participation of African Americans in public life. Mahone's biracial readjuster party of farmers and working class people directly threatened virtually every belief and practice that characterized pre-Civil War Virginia political culture. Billy Mahone was thoroughly reconstructed. A surprisingly large number of white Virginia men and women were also partly or thoroughly reconstructed as a result of their supporting the readjusters and public education. The readjusters won. Thereafter, even the most, even among those white Virginians who had originally opposed public education, no intelligent or ambitious Virginia politician dared question the value of public schools. Admittedly, many of them refused to appropriate enough money to make sure that they were good public schools. And what is more and more remarkable, the readjusters won on the question of reducing the principal and interest on the debt. The old conservative party, the original safe house of the funders, fell apart when the readjusters became successful and then reorganized itself as a white supremacy democratic party. In order to seduce white voters away from the readjusters and bring them into the new democratic party, old conservatives had to turn their coats. They openly disavowed their funder past and embraced and stoutly defended the readjusters' refinancing of the public debt. The Democrats screwed the readjusters, too, and passed a shelf of laws and engaged in scores of lawsuits to avoid paying all the principal and interest the state had promised back in 1871. Lawsuits, lawsuits, lawsuits. More than 85 cases reached the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, and 29 reached the Supreme Court of the United States, almost all of them concerning the troublesome tax receivable character of the interest-bearing coupons. For 40 years after the Democrats took control of the state away from the readjusters, elite white supremacist, white business-oriented Democrats ran the state. At the end of that 40 years, Harry Byrd inherited the management of that party and ran it in the same way and for the same purposes for 40 more years. That's 80 years. That was almost one-fourth of the entire history of Virginia up to that date. Democrats' voting laws and practices made it impossible until the fourth quarter of the 20th century for black and white people to cooperate politically or for poor people of either race to have any significant influence on public policies and government. For many of those years, Democrats pointed to Billy Mahone and the readjusters as a dangerous, subversive boogeyman who would ruin everything that was good for Virginia. Good for elite white businessmen, anyway. Those political leaders 
falsely charged that Mahone and the readjusters tried to impose black domination on the state's white people and that they ruined the good name of Virginia by refinancing the debt. Even though those post-readjusters Democrats screwed the state's creditors more often and more thoroughly and more successfully and for a longer time than the readjusters did. Take a look at this. This is a group photograph of members of the House of Delegates early in the 1870s. It is hung in the Capitol building almost ever since. This was the second assembly in which African-American men served. Some of them are visible here. But look, they were segregated from the others. Their portraits are on a separate but largely equal bottom line. Within a very few years, group portraits of members of the General Assembly omitted all black senators and delegates, even before white Democrats fashioned voting laws and constitutional provisions that prevented them from winning election to public office at all. But that ain't the end of the story. This map we looked at a while ago hints at what else happened. Notice that the red lines showing where railroads were built with borrowed public money indicate that none of the railroads was built in the part of Virginia that in 1863 became West Virginia. Even though the policy of the state to provide money for antebellum transportation projects was supposed to link all parts of the state together, that network did not benefit everybody. In fact, Western Virginians did not benefit at all. Not one foot of track laid with borrowed public money was in the part of Virginia that became West Virginia in 1863. The dotted red lines in West Virginia were for railroads planned as of 1861, but not yet built. Small wonder that after the Civil War, the government of West Virginia refused to pay any part of the public debt of Old Virginia, even though the West Virginia Constitution of 1863 promised that the state would. So what do West Virginians do thereafter? In 1872, they adopted a new constitution and deleted that promise. <laughs> in 1906, this is 45 years after the last borrowed money, the state's Virginia's attorney general filed suit in the Supreme Court of the United States to force West Virginia to pay part of the old debt. The Supreme Court agreed that the law required West Virginians to pay, even though they had not benefited at all from the railroads that the money their credit paid for built. The West Virginia government naturally fought the government of Virginia every step of the way for every legal and financial reason its politicians and lawyers could contrive. They prepared this map in 1914 from data in the archives of Virginia here in Richmond to prove that their grandparents gained nothing from the borrowed money and that therefore their grandchildren should not have to pay for it. However, the Supreme Court ruled, and the Supreme Court rules. Finally, in 1919, the West Virginia legislature gave up and promised to pay part of the debt. As a result of the long legal battles, West Virginians paid taxes from 1919 to 1937, and Virginians paid taxes from 1871 to 1944 to pay a debt incurred for the construction of railroads before 1861, all of which were destroyed or rebuilt even before 
1871 refinancing of the Virginia debt. You could say, I would, that early 20th century Virginians and West Virginians got screwed along with the 19th century bond speculators. The debt controversy was important both politically and financially. The politics of the debt controversy demonstrated that it was possible in the post-Civil War South for people of both races to work together to create a completely new political culture that was totally different from all of Virginia's old cherished political and cultural traditions. The Democrats' speedy destruction of that biracial political coalition in the mid-1880s also showed how difficult that task was. Nobody repeated anything like it in Virginia until the Civil Rights Movement got underway, and it was much less a biracial movement than the Readjuster Party had been. And I learned all that without having to do any arithmetic at all. Thank you. They tell me I'm vulnerable to questions, so. There should be a mic in each aisle. Interesting, and uh, I'm glad you didn't have to do arithmetic. Um, I would still be doing it, and it would get, be wrong. <laughs> well, it's said that history is a, uh, a self-help manual. What, uh, what might we learn from this experience uh, about our national debt today? You know, I don't know. <laughs> there are unique things about the Virginia debt controversy. Uh, one of them is the circumstances under which the debt was created. One of them is the circumstances that existed after the Civil War when they tried to pay it back. And another is that the readjusters appealed across race and party lines. They created a, a new political coalition that was biracial, that was unlike anything before or since. Um, that shaped the politics. And the politics consequently shaped the long series of lawsuits that in turn reshaped the politics. So we, we don't have dynamics functioning like that with the national debt. Um, I don't want to leave an impression that debt is never a good thing. I mean, it's the only way you can buy a house. It's the only way a country can fight a war. It may be the only way in which uh, in the 19th century states and federal governments could assist in the development of extremely necessary canal and railroad projects. But you do have to pay a lot of money for it. And that money goes to people who own the debt, to people who bought the bonds or the people who bought the bonds from those first people. Um, should you pay a holder of a bond the face value if that holder of a bond bought it at a discounted rate? I mean, this is not a new question. Uh, go back and read your history about Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Hamilton's plan to refinance the public debt after the American Revolution required that the federal government pay off the state debts incurred in the War for Independence. But at that time, most of those original securities had been bought up by bond speculators. They bought them up at 10 or 15 cents on the dollar and demanded to be paid 100 cents on the dollar. Well, should a state be required to do that? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I don't know how much of the debt of the United States now is owned in other countries. I understand it's a considerable amount. Are we required to pay other countries for our money? 
I'm afraid I can't answer your question. I just don't know. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you can't apply one set of rules for all debts because all debts, like all people, are not exactly created equal. Question over here. Can you date the public schools in Virginia, the first uh, public school? It may not have been. Can you date the first public school? Uh, yes and no. Yes, I have a second question, too. Okay. I've uh, been long wanting to ask this. Uh, is the state of West Virginia legal? Oh, that's a terrific question. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the question of the schools, um, during the period from about the 18-teens up to the Civil War, um, some counties created rudimentary schools that were available largely for the children of paupers. Paupers, poor people. Some jurisdictions, I know Norfolk did this and three or four others, obtained special permission from the General Assembly to create municipal school systems, which mostly were just for the elementary grades. Um, the first statewide system of public education is actually for black people. The Army's Freedmen's Bureau created a statewide system of free public schools for black children right after the Civil War. It lasted from 1866 to 1869. Um, the Constitution of 1869 established public education as a right for everybody in Virginia. In 1870, the General Assembly passed a law that established how it was to work and appropriated the first money. And the first schools opened in the autumn of 1870. Uh, the plan was to have at least elementary schooling available throughout the state by the end of 1876. Um, they did a pretty good job of it, especially after the readjusters got control of the budget and provided adequate money. Now, is West Virginia constitutional? Uh, there's two or three books on this. There's a, there's a hundred and some odd page law review article in University of California Law Review on this subject. I can refer you to that. Um, People say that West Virginia is not constitutional. A state can't split off some of its counties into another state. Um, but you have to remember that that took place in a, a time of extraordinary, extraordinary events that had no uh, historical background or precedent at all. You cannot find a precedent for secession, so therefore the Northwestern Virginians would say there's no such thing as legal, constitutional, peaceful secession. They were still part of the United States. We have to change our name, but we're still part of the United States. Um, there were legal battles about this in the 1860s, and there was a legal battle that didn't last very long right after the Civil War. Virginia sued West Virginia in about 1867 or 8, um, claiming that West Virginia had stolen Berkeley and Jefferson counties. The Supreme Court said West Virginia is West Virginia, that there was an act of Congress, that there was a constitutional convention of people elected for that purpose, that the legislature of the restored government of Virginia gave its permission as the Constitution of the United States requires. The president had recognized that government in Wheeling as the legitimate government of the loyal people of Virginia. Congress had admitted senators and representatives from that government almost throughout the entire Civil War. The Supreme Court said West Virginia is a legal state. What the Supreme Court did not say is that Virginia, you sued West Virginia. Isn't that an acknowledgment that it is a legitimate state? Um, it's, a, it's a moot issue, as the lawyers would now say, but it's truly a fascinating uh, legal conundrum in American constitutional history with no precedent, and so far that's only the, the one. Sorry, that was a tough question. I'm sorry I went on so long, but you can't answer that one short. Question over here? Yeah. 
just wondering, um, did Virginia consider paying off the debt before the, the end of the war in Confederate currency? <laughs> no. That's a good short answer. In fact, Virginia suspended interest payments throughout the Civil War. Uh, that's fairly common for uh, governments to do during a wartime. Um, they were financially unable to resume interest payments in any significant degree after the end of the Civil War. And it wasn't until the refinance of the debt in 1871 that they put in place a way in which they could uh, begin paying interest on the debt. Did that answer the question? I was really surprised to hear about Virginia's public debt because when I grew up in Virginia and through the years I've heard Virginia's opposed to debt. We're not like New York, we're not like Pennsylvania, whatever. We don't do a lot of debt. So, And I'm wondering, this is probably a dumb question, but is this opposition to public debt because of having to pay this interest from 1871 to whatever, 1944, whatever you said? That's a very, actually a very good question, and the answer is yes. Um, they made it in the Constitution of uh, 1869, they made it extremely difficult for the state to incur a debt for any purpose, even for assisting in economic growth and development. Um, that was retained with some modifications in the Constitution of 1902. That was really the, the sort of the main campaign slogan of Harry Byrd in the 1920s, pay as you go, no debt. And what they would say is, look what happened. The state incurred a debt, black people got in politics, and they messed up everything. Therefore, no, that is. I mean, it's a purely racist argument. And it worked wonderfully well because there weren't hardly any black voters left by the time they were making that argument. So yeah, the, the resistance to, to public debt in Virginia derives directly from the politics of the Virginia debt controversy after the Civil War. That's all changed now, but that was a very good question. Uh, during this debt uh, controversy, what role did the carpetbaggers play in this, if any? Well, I don't like the word carpetbaggers. It was an insult. Scalawag was an insult. Um, there were a lot of people who moved to Virginia during and after the Civil War. Insofar as I can tell, they didn't come down here trying to rob the place the way that some of us learned when we were young in school once upon a time. No, they were people who were genuinely interested in, in change and reform. They, you know, they moved down here to, to run banks and build railroads and do other things that were good for everybody. Um, most, well, not most, a substantial number of the members of the Constitutional Convention of 1867 and 8 that wrote the new Constitution that created public education did come from outside Virginia. There was a larger number of non-Virginia natives in that state constitutional convention than in any other. And a good many people from outside Virginia remained here, some of them for decades, served in the legislature, uh, ran banks, founded major law firms, uh, did the things that ordinary people do. Um, but they realized that if you were going to ditch Virginia's old, backward-looking slavery past, you were going to have to change a lot of things. You were going to have to bring everybody into the voting booth. You were going to have to treat everybody fairly in the courthouse. You were going to have to give everybody an opportunity for a good education. You know, at the end of the Civil War, 40% of all Virginians were illiterate. Almost 40% of white Virginians were illiterate, 90% of black Virginians. You can't have any kind of chance at economic success late in the 19th century with that ignorant a population. 
it took no time at all for the new public school system, poor as it was, to gain widespread public support. Those white politicians who were mostly homegrown old slaveholders opposed it because, and they said this, you know, it's not my, billet, my, my responsibility to pay for the education of the white trash, these black people. Good people can educate their own children, always have. Well, of course, that was not true. Only rich people could educate their own children in the olden days. So the opportunity for education was widely recognized uh, within just a few years as uh, almost a fundamental right. We didn't get that language in the state constitution for a long time. But that idea came into Virginia from outside. But it took root here and grew very fast. And the readjusters are one of the reasons why the idea of public education is now regarded as a right of everyone. They campaigned on that. Don't pay the debt, pay the teachers. I'm on their side. Last question? Last question, they say. Better be a good one. <laughs> Pressure's on. Uh, yeah. uh, thank you, it was very interesting. Uh, I'm you... glad you said that. You know, this, this is a tough subject. I've, I've, I was afraid of it for well, years, you, you, and you it involves financing and lawsuits and complicated politics. Well, you thank like, you. You like a good challenge. I like uh, a good story. Yeah. Uh, do you know, or is there evidence to show that, um, that this crisis affected the growth and investment in the, throughout the South? Did they look at Virginia and say, oh, you know, look what they did. They spent all this money, and now look what happened, and look what's happened politically. And that, so do you think that it, it did suppress investment throughout the South? It could have. I, I don't know enough about some of the other Southern states to speak knowledgeably about how different their experience was. Several Southern states defaulted on part of their debt even before the Civil War, because other states were doing similar things. Uh, they didn't usually um, sell bonds to buy railroad stock. Um, they usually um, just bought some of the stock or lent money. So everybody was doing this, and several of the southern states defaulted on their debts before the Civil War. The biggest pre-war defaults were, I think, in Minnesota and Michigan, where they were digging canals and railroads, and their tax money ran out. Um, after the Civil War, many of the southern states sought to uh, boost their economies by issuing new bonds and borrowing more money and trying to get this money into circulation to rebuild a railroad or rebuild a canal or to refinance the banks. And all of those states had serious difficulties, and all of them defaulted to a certain extent. Virginia is, I think, unique among the states of the ex-Confederacy that it issued no new debt after the Civil War. So it, it's, it's hard to generalize from the Virginia experience to the other experience. What is unique in the Virginia experience, and I think there's absolutely no doubt about this, is the biracial reform character of the readjuster coalition. Nothing like that happened anywhere else in the South after the 1860s or before the 1890s. There were the populists of the 1890s succeeded in several places, including right down the road in North Carolina, of taking over the state government with a coalition of black and white and poor farmers of both races in the 1890s. That happened in several southern states. Didn't happen in Virginia because it had already happened in the readjuster period 12 or 15 years earlier. And in the meantime, the state's Democrats had made it impossible at the voting booth for it ever to happen again. Okay, they're gonna cut us off now, Ryan. Thank, thank you.